The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. COVID. It's been a weird old time. And there's been nothing weirder than what's happened in the global logistics system. No one would have expected that suddenly the global supply system would grind to a halt, that it would freeze up, and all sorts of things would be missing from our shelves and be carnage on the ports and huge lines of ships. How did that happen? And how long is it going to last? Well, one way to explain this and how COVID has upended so many things and may be doing it for a long time is through the eyes of Adele's latest record, or more importantly, her latest album, which, of course, is now often bought as a vinyl record. Now, she's complained this year that one of the reasons it took so long for the album to come out, and a huge gap between her previous album and this one, is that she had to plan for a big gap between the end of the production of the album and when it was launched. More than six months. Why? Because so many people now are buying albums in vinyl, which means you have to organise to get the vinyl pressed and get the cover made and put into a box and sent to the warehouse and the retailer and then wrapped up in plastic and sent by the courier to the, the front door. It's a major logistics exercise where previously there wasn't one. Because what we discovered is that during the lockdown, everyone was stuck at home with not much to do. And instead of spending money on going on holidays or going to the restaurant or the movies or the theatre, people were stuck at home wondering, hmm, I want to listen to my favourite music, but more accurately, I want to watch my favourite music go round and around on a turntable. And Adele, who had finished this long-awaited album, it seems like years ago, had to think about this new demand for vinyl records and how it would be distributed around the world and how long it would take to be distributed into the record stores and the warehouses so that when she announced that the album was out, everyone could go and buy it. It meant, she complained, that Adele and her record company had to book out every vinyl factory in the world to make sure that half a million vinyl albums would be out there and ready for people to buy on their online platform of choice or in their store of choice so that when she announced the record, people could sell it and they wouldn't be frustrated. That cascaded down the line because not only were people buying Adele records, they were also buying Fleetwood Mac's rooms (laughs) and all sorts of historic uh, things. What's amazing with the vinyl explosion, of course, is that last year, there were more vinyl albums sold than CDs sold for the first time since the 1980s. And the COVID crisis and this desire to be at home and have an experience that wasn't a digital one was the moment when we all went online and bought ourselves a fancy turntable and a whole bunch of vinyl records, when previously we may only have listened to it in digital form. So just think about what that means. That means that before COVID... 
people were listening to music in digital forms, nothing had to physically travel anywhere. There didn't have to be a vinyl pressing. There didn't have to be a factory. There didn't have to be a container with all those boxes of of vinyl records. There didn't have to be covers. There didn't have to be people stacking them in shelves and putting them into plastic bags and sending them onto trucks and sending them to people. That physical stuff going through the supply chain wasn't needed before, but now it was. Now multiply that across all sorts of things. We're all stuck at home in lockdowns. Instead of spending our money on holidays and trips out to the restaurants on services, now we're buying stuff. So it starts to explain why the shock that's going through our logistics system at the moment is so big and why it seems to be lasting so long, to the point where now there are a hundred ships lined up off the Los Angeles port. And where Logistics is the sexiest, most controversial, difficult problem for governments to try to deal with. That's this week on When the Facts Change, where I speak to Chris Edwards, who's the head of the Custom Brokers and Freight Forwarders Federation in New Zealand, who really understands how the system has changed so dramatically. And also I've talked to Professor Tava Olson from Auckland University who studies how companies deal with these logistics issues and how they're thinking again about being more resilient. That's this week on When the Facts Change. First, I wanted to talk to someone who really understands the sector and has a passion for it. Chris Edwards is the president of the Custom Brokers and Freight Forwarders Federation, Kabaf, and he really knows about logistics. Well, kia ora to Chris Edwards, and welcome to Win the Facts Change. G'day, Bernard. How are you going? Great. Good. Tell me about what's been happening with the global logistics system since COVID and you know how that's different from what you've seen in your decades of experience covering the logistics industry. Well, I think the, the mere fact we're talking about it tells you that the whole situation has changed. You go back two or three years ago, very few had even thought or heard of the supply chain. But we've become the, the liquefaction verb, I guess, of, uh, of general conversation. Everyone's talking supply chain, whether it's legitimate or not. So things have certainly changed. And I think we have learned, Bernard, that we are the, very much the Stuart Island of the supply chain when it comes to world supply chains. So COVID broke out. A lot of ships were stuck on the high seas, some ports you know, closed down, a lot of the workers were stuck at home during lockdowns. How did that cascade through the system? What was the impact in the months that followed? Well, let's wind it back if we can to 2019, because in 2019, the shipping industry realised they had more vessels than there was cargo going around the world. And by most estimates, they, they parked up around 800 vessels uh, because they wanted to reduce capacity and therefore drive up freight rates. Along comes COVID and it's like Christmas for the shipping industry, as I'm sure you've seen in their results. Too much cargo, not enough capacity, and it's uh, it's definitely changed that. I think what it's also happened is it's given a lot of strength to the shipping industry, where perhaps you could argue in the previous seven or eight years, they were very much the poor cousins in the supply chain. Low freight rates, losses for some of the companies, those sorts of things. So suddenly what was a commodity, a really sort of boring part of the global economy, 
becomes the hot mess <laughs> that everyone's watching. It does. So tell yes. us um, what's happened to, you know, the costs of uh, shipping and the delays and, you know, what are we seeing on the ports and in the loading docks? Let's wind it back to a, a New Zealand importer example. For many, many years, the freight cost was a tiny portion of their landed costs. In fact, it barely figured in their, in their reckoning. Now it's a significant portion of a landed cost. In my personal view, it's leading to things like inquiries and building product prices and that sort of stuff. It's gone from being a minor part to a really high part. Built into that discussion is something called congestion, and we have not been used to congestion before. I'm sure in this conversation we'll talk about a just-in-time supply chain, which New Zealand was built on. But congestion around the world and government policy to COVID has really affected the supply chain in ways we, I don't think, could have predicted, and we certainly haven't adjusted to it uh, as perhaps as well as we could have done. But I think the thing I've really learned is how little disruption it needs to make the whole thing fall apart. Most reports I read say that the increase in volume is around 5%, which sounds tiny, but look at the effect it has when you can't plan and you can't predict peaks and troughs. Suddenly the whole system falls over. Statistically, in New Zealand, the exporting community have been well looked after. They've got some strong relationships with shipping lines and volume's actually up for a lot of those people because of those relationships. But for a lot of middle and SME-sized businesses, they've struggled this year both to predict when they're getting their goods and how are they going to pass their cost increases on. That just-in-time um, system has become essential uh, in our 30 years of globalisation and the re configuring of supply chains, essentially moving from having a lot of manufacturing in the likes of Europe and the United States towards having a lot of particularly component assembly and manufacturing in China. So those supply chains have lengthened, there's a lot more links in them. And over 30 years, um, you know, all of these MBAs who are running these companies are, are looking at the likes of Toyota and all these systems going, aha, just in time. A stock is a bad thing. I want to be just, just, just at the cutting edge every time, which of course assumes that there's no hiccups, that there's no need for resilience. And it seems to me that right along these global supply chains, everyone's decided stocks are a good thing again and that they need to be more resilient. But of course, that creates a feedback loop when you've got more people sitting at home ordering things to buy from their couch. And then you've got all the, the points in the supply chain going, oh, I need some stocks. Suddenly you've got an order for six bits instead of one. Exactly. And even in that discussion there, so you've got financing issues. And I think the inventory controller, his voice is now the loudest in the boardroom where in the previous years, it's been the accountant. Stock on hand is not a good thing, says the accountant. Now stock on hand is better than cash. You know, stock is king. But it's also changed the supply chain in some respects, made it more difficult to recover. Bernard, you're dead right. Instead of ordering, say, two containers of something, people are ordering six or 10 of them because they want that stock on hand because then they can sell it in their local market. I'm not sure if this spells the death of the just-in-time supply chain into the medium and long term, but for the next two or three years, it certainly does. I don't think anyone's got the confidence to go back to that model. Back in, the, in I guess, pre-2019 years, ships were a bit like buses. So were airlines. You'd book it, it would leave the following day. There wasn't a huge amount of science to it other than sort of a bit of forecasting. And you could forecast certain events in a shipping calendar. Chinese New Year, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Christmas. They were all in our shipping calendars. These days, though, you can't predict that because of that online ordering you refer to and just people ordering a lot more of that same commodity. 
So the just-in-case supply chain model now is very much the dominant one. Let's hold more stock. Let's build more warehouses. Let's get more financing from our bank so we can buy more products. Uh, it has certainly seen a change in those models. And also, it's given a lot more pricing power and market power to these big shipping lines. In the past, we've had five or six shipping lines which have dominated the uh, the market. Over time, they've progressively moved to bigger ships stopping at fewer and fewer ports. But it's as, as if someone has pressed the fast forward button on those trends. Could you tell us about what's happened to these big shipping lines and these big ships and the number of ports they're stopping at and how that affects New Zealand? Uh, you've certainly done some good research, Bernard. You're 100% on the money about what will change here. Let's just stick to the New Zealand example, in my view. At the moment, we're going to go to a hub-and-spoke model where the big shipping lines, the Mersks of the world, etc., will choose one port in the North Island, one in the South Island, and that's the only place they'll call. Now, we say big ships. In reality, we're talking vessels that carry between five to 10,000 containers, unlike the big 20,000 container vessels you see get stuck in canals from time to time. So we're not on that sort of scale. But I think inevitably the shipping lines, particularly in their position of dominance now, will make that decision for us. And when you think about New Zealand, there's a lot of ports for a small country. It's quite unique in that respect. And port policy is also quite disjointed, depending who you speak to and who owns the port and who thinks it's an asset or a liability. Um, and I think I can see that changing as well. Clearly, we've got decisions around what happens to the ports of Auckland, but let's take Nelson as an example. Nelson has been left behind by most of the shipping lines. They don't want to call that port. Therefore, how do they get their goods to market? Nelson has people like Sea Lord and uh, Tellys, the big fishery guys. They need to be supported. So that's made them think about how they will collaborate and change supply chains in the future, I'm sure. But I think what we have also learned, Bernard, is that we don't have something called an FMC like they've got in the USA, which looks after shipping and supply chains on behalf of the government. Here we've got the government looking at that sort of thing themselves, and I'm not sure they've yet really grasped the issues that have presented themselves, and I guess we'll touch on that at some point as well. But coming back to your original point, that hub-and-spoke model I think is inevitable for our part of the world. Because you're right, we're a long, skinny country with lots of different concentrations of people, including this bloody awkward two-island thing yes. and a really nasty little channel in the middle. Yes, exactly. And... And a bunch of councils who love having their own ports. It's like a convention centre in the centre of town. You've got to have your own port. You know, back in the 1890s, it made an awful lot of sense for everyone to have their own port. There weren't container terminals. Ships were small enough to turn up. Could we see this fast-forwarding of the um, move towards fewer, bigger ships and fewer visits to New Zealand uh, trigger some sort of reform of, you know, how many ports and how we get stuff around the place? I think that's inevitable because the other part about the supply chain is our geographical location. We can't change that. We are at the end of the supply chain. And if we didn't have dairy, I wonder what position we would be in. I mean, that's the drawcard for many shipping lines to come here. I do think it's inevitable that the policy has to change. But there are competing interests. You've got the likes of, say, Napier and Wellington trying to attract the same cargo into the hinterland of, say, Palmerston North. How do you resolve that without central government being involved? You've got the kick down the can down the road situation of the ports of Auckland. What do you do there? I mean, the Auckland City Council suggested it helps suppress rates with the council, you know, with the port bringing in dividends. Others see it as an eyesore in 
the city. I, I guess it depends on your point of view. Um, but I do personally believe that we probably, oh, we hate it for this as well, but we probably have too many ports for a country our size and we would be better focusing on how we get cargo around the coast uh, and potentially on rail to the bigger ports effectively and efficiently rather than everyone competing for a slice of the same shipping pie. Because as I said before, my personal view, Bernard, is the shipping lines will make that decision for us anyway. Why wait until they do, you know? And that business of moving things from smaller ports to larger ports, the hub-and-spoke system, we haven't really thought about that much. Over the years, our coastal shipping networks, if you like, have atrophied. Uh, What is the industry government doing about trying to deal with this issue of being able to take, you know, a few containers from Wellington to Napier or or maybe everything to Auckland or Tauranga or, or Littleton? I think there's another piece to this discussion too, Bernard, in that traditionally when markets or supply chain wasn't congested, the international vessels themselves would pick up containers in one port and take them to another. And they're protected by law to allow them to do that. But I don't know that we've found that very useful in the past 18 months because when they're already delayed, they want to come in and get out as soon as possible. And we've seen a lot of those regional ports left behind. In terms of hub and spoke, we've got definitely the New Zealand situation, but I would go a bit further, although it's controversial perhaps, I think Australia uh, and New Zealand should be looking for a hub-and-spoke partnership. I could see for the small to medium-sized businesses, not the Fonterras who need direct port calls and have got the volume to dictate that, but how about a spoke model where it has a hub, say, in a port like Newcastle, a regional port that we could invest in, and then have feeder vessels going back and forth across the Tasman, taking our exports, bringing out our imports on a much more predictable schedule that then feeds the market back and forth. Now, I've raised this in a few media interviews, and some have shot me down, some have liked the idea, but it, it's a way of freeing up the supply chain and making it more predictable, because we've seen when the going gets tough, that predictability really suffers, and therefore exporters can't give gifts to market, or your kids' Christmas presents late you know and I think there has to be some work done in that space too on the key issue of the kids Christmas presents there's a ship that has uh, uh, this week decided um, that it can't stop in Auckland it's going to drop the containers off which it put on some extra uh, space to bring in stuff from uh, Singapore and it's off up to Northland um, could you tell us what's going on here and you know how that's going to make life difficult well I think we should start by focusing on the ports of Auckland and the answer to that question because the reason that this is calling Northport according to the shipping line which may be saying this for legal reasons I'm not sure is that the ports of Auckland can't accommodate them now the ports of Auckland can't accommodate them in my opinion because they can't give them what we call a fixed berthing window in other words a predictable time when a vessel pulls alongside and you start taking taking containers off. No doubt that's due to the automation project, which is a long way behind. And today's announcement of a new Auckland port CEO is welcome news, because I really hope he will come along from the ports of Littleton and really up that program. But coming back to the Northport call, yes, MSC are going to Northport to get these containers in ahead of when they were originally scheduled to be. But there's devil in the detail there. Those containers have been sitting in Singapore between eight to 12 weeks. MSC, like so many shipping lines, use transship models to get their cargo from, say, Europe into New Zealand. So while it's good to get them here before Christmas, many of those importers are already three months late. Then those containers will arrive in Northport. Those same importers will have to spend another $1,500 to $2,000 per container, bring them from Northport at their expense down to Auckland for their shops or factories or whatever it might be, run the gauntlet of the border, which is still in place until the 15th as well, and who knows what that looks like. A number of those trucks may not have warrants. We had that problem last time as well, which will further delay them. And because Northport, no fault of their own, are not 
set up to do containers, there's no automation, there's no visual uh, information about the container numbers and those sorts of things. It's very manual, like the old days, creating more stress at a time when stress is at its pretty uh, much a zenith already. How long is this going to go on? Because a year ago, we all thought, phew, 2021 is going to be, you know, a cakewalk. And here we are, <laughs> December 2021, and it seems worse than ever. Oh, it's easy to be wise after the fact. I remember doing interviews last year, and I, and I predicted at the time it was quarter four 2022, and people thought I was being negative and pessimistic. I might be optimistic now with that prediction. Um, I, I think a few things will happen. Let, let's switch focus for a minute to air freight. As soon as tourists can come back to this market – air freight becomes much easier and hopefully a lot more cost effective. You go back to the situation in 2018, 2019, we had a lot of airlines coming to a small country. Why? Because we're a beautiful place and they want to come and see it. Under everyone's feet in those aircraft is cargo. That's great. It brings the price down. It gives exporters opportunities to export, importers opportunities to import. Right now, we don't have that. The air freight market is horrendous. You can't get space on aircraft and people are paying a small fortune to get that in. I think that fixes first. I really see that coming right as soon as the borders and the policy around testing becomes clear, the airlines will start coming back as they have done to Australia. So we also own businesses in Australia. A lot of airlines have signaled their intention to return this month and next month, which is great. Our air freight rates are dropping for our Australian business. Sea freight, on the other hand, is harder to predict when it comes right. Looking at physical assets, a lot of these new vessels that are being built will come on stream at the beginning of 2023. And you mentioned earlier, Bernard, that freight is a commodity. That is very true. More capacity means freight rates come down and more options. But until then, between now and, say, Christmas time next year, maybe we'll talk again, I don't know what the circuit breaker is. Maybe inflation's a circuit breaker as demand decreases and there's therefore more space on vessels. Maybe Chinese power, uh, powering factories, meaning less goods are being produced, might be the circuit breaker. But nothing shows me at the moment that there's anything coming in the first six months of next year. Once the ports of Auckland get their automation fixed, it may attract new players. And if that happens, then again, that will speed up the fixing of the market. Because on the face of it, this is a commodity. You've got ships, there are going to be new ships built, and every time the new ones are built, they're bigger than the last ones. These ships last for a long time. They're not made of uh, sugar cane. They just hang around for a while. Do you think this inflation is transitory, which is what a lot of central banks have said for the last six months or so? Just hold tight. COVID will pass and these freight rates will drop back to normal. But you're in there. What do you think? Is it transitory? I'm feeling scared to give an opinion to an economist, but I've never thought inflation was transitory these last few months at all. I've always thought it's with us for the long term. Um, coming back to freight rates, to be fair to the shipping industry, and I know it's, a lot of people don't like them at the moment, go back a couple of years ago, those freight rates were completely unsustainable. You can't run a vessel worth many millions of dollars on what it costs to get a weekend plumber out to fix a leak. You know, that, that doesn't make any sense. So somewhere between these amazingly high freight rates where shipping lines are making more money than Facebook and the low rates of the past sits the answer. And I think until that equilibrium is felt, there's going to be disruption in the market. But freight is a commodity, and it's a commodity that's both sold online, sold through relationships, or sold through contracts. And that is also a change in the market, with the biggest shipping line currently to New Zealand, or that's about to change to MSC, saying that they won't enter into contracts with smaller to medium players. And I think that's also a bit of a disruptor and a game changer. Great for the big end of town, the, the Zespris and the Fonterras, not so good for the small and medium guys, which make up a big section of our uh, economy. And to put that in context, I do some work for an onion exporter who was told by that shipping line today they no longer will take their bookings under contract. They're back on the spot market. It's 
a free-for-all, which is hard to plan your business that way. Maybe some cheap onions to go with the cheap avocados. Um, yeah, right. sure. and the capsicums and the asparagus. Yes, that's right, yes. <laughs> just finally, um, the government is just quietly spending $30 million or so having a look at um, what it can do to improve coastal shipping because from a climate change point of view and from a road safety point of view, where once we relied on sh- on trucks to move everything up and down between these ports in our long, skinny country, it would make a lot more sense to take a lot of those containers uh, off those trucks on the road and put them onto ships to go to the, the hub ports. What do you think is the likely outcome there? I think we have to be very careful when we look at that future supply chain because I think certain lobby groups like rail, for example, have a very dominant voice in that discussion. Coastal shipping's been left behind for many years in that talk, but the truckers too are very important. Let's take an inland port example where a container, say, shipped up the coast uh, and it's grabbed from that port by rail to an inland hub. You still need trucks to go and collect that container and deliver to door. And what I've felt in this discussion and certainly in some of the reports I've read, is focused on one mode at the expense of others. You just can't do that. One size doesn't fit all. I don't think we need multi-million dollar reports to tell us the coastal shipping needs attention. We've known that for a number of years. I think what it needs is some at-the-coalface action. I've been involved in a number of workshops with MOT, who are the lead agency in these discussions, and there is sometimes a sound of ideologies clashing. They want to take the carbon footprint, reduce it. They want to green the supply chain, all of which are great goals to have. But right now, there are some very practical things that need to happen, such as boosting some of the capacity on rail, making a decision around ports of Auckland, those sorts of things which need to take place, I think, sooner than later. Uh, And coming back to coastal shipping, Bernard, I think hopefully the study will show how many vessels we would need on the coast. We have private enterprise entering the market next year through a business called Move Logistics, putting their own vessel on, uh, mainly to service its own accounts, but I'm sure that will change. But I guess looking at the whole supply chain from the beginning to the end and all the moving parts is where I would do my report, not just isolate one section only. Fantastic. Chris Edwards there, who is the president of the Customs Brokers and Freight Forwarders Federation of New Zealand. Thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change, Chris. Thank you. After the break, we'll speak to Professor Tava Olson, who's a director for the Centre of Supply Chain Management at the University of Auckland's Business School and really has been watching supply chains her entire life. And it's getting very exciting. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10%. Uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted, they've tightened monetary policy, they've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we've seen inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is, is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? 
With over 300 kilometers of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Well, kia ora, and welcome to Professor Tava Olson, who is the Director for the Centre of Supply Chain Management at the University of Auckland's Business School. Tava, welcome to When the Facts Change. Kia ora, Bernard, and it's very, very nice to be talking to you. An exciting time to be an expert in logistics. Tell us about how the last year and a half has looked to you as someone who's been following this for quite some time. Sure. I mean, it's as a, someone who does supply chains, it's actually been quite exciting. Um, so at the beginning of the first lockdown, I was actually getting phone calls from reporters for the first time in my career. So uh, that, was, that was exciting, even though it wasn't exactly good for a lot of our shopping habits, etc. But um, in general, supply chains don't do well with shocks. And what we've been seeing is a lot of shocks on the demand side and the supply side. Yeah, in particular around where containers are. I understand that when the shock happened, obviously a lot of people were stuck on ships and ports were closed. Um, The normal practices with labour, you know, people flying back home after a couple of months, all of that stuff changed. And I understand all the containers were in the wrong place. Is that right? To some extent, yeah. I mean, it's 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 also what was in the containers. Um, so, you know, people's buying habits changed. Um, so I don't know if you remember, but for a while we had no flour and then you had those big bags of flour. And that was simply because we didn't, we had plenty of flour. We just didn't have plenty of supermarket sized bags to put them in. And it took a while to replenish the actual bags as opposed to the flour. So yeah, they stole the big bags. And one of the things that happened is that we were stuck at home. We're not going out to the movies or the restaurants or going to our tarot card readers and not spending so much on services. We were buying stuff on Amazon and eBay and Trade Me, which was um, we were expecting tomorrow because that's the way it used to be. <laughs> and, and we were all doing it at once. Um, how did that sort of change the scale and the speed and the you know, the size of what was going through these global networks. Yeah, so there's been, the the move to online shopping was happening anyway, but it's been dramatically increased by COVID-19. And to some extent in New Zealand, even bigger in the US, um, but, you know, people people have become used to shopping online and, you know, you're browsing those things. And as you say, you're not at the movies, so now we're buying the the thing online. Um, So this sort of shift away from services to goods has definitely increased the volume of uh, goods that are in our supply chain. 
And uh, over the last 30 years, we've seen this globalization of manufacturing, a reconfiguring of supply chains. They're lengthened. They've got a lot more bits in them. Remaking things in one place, lots of bits of pieces have come from all over the place, and then they're bouncing back across oceans. You know, you can have components you go across the Pacific two or three times before they end up on your table. In that process, there's there used to be a bunch of just-in-time, barely any supply stocks. When COVID hit, everyone thought okay, just in time, it's probably a bit too strong. Let's have a few stocks so we're just in case. Uh, what does that mean for demand for things and the actual stuff that has to be in the supply chain? Because instead of needing one thing, now you need six things. Yeah, so all of that's going to eventually smooth out, right? So you, you will start your stockpiling, but once you have your stockpile, the flows are still the same. Um, but on the other hand, it does make your supply chains longer, right? Because it takes, you know, it's now going to sit in stock for a while before it flows on. So it's made all those lead times longer um, by by these just-in-case stocks that we're keeping, as you, as you called them. It's the buffer or suffer. Um, so, you know, one of the interesting questions that comes up is, will we actually see a return to lean just-in-time supply chains? Because they are cheaper. <laughs> Or is this a permanent change to a more resilient but a bit more expensive supply chains? What are you hearing from the world's logistics managers having chats with their CFOs and boards? Uh, so there's certainly a feeling that we do need to have more robust and resilient supply chains. The question is, will the you know short-term cost of that for the longer term, you know, will actually pay off? Uh, will that actually be tolerated by senior management? and those who are actually on top of their supply chains are more positive about it than when supply chain is just viewed as this cost centre over here and just keep those costs down and we're not really going to think about you strategically. That's when companies, I think, are going to actually get in trouble because these days your supply chain has to be part of your strategic thinking. And we've also seen these amazing increase in container rates and the, the sheer cost of shipping, double, triple, and the shipping companies in particular have, you know, made hay while the sun has shone. How um, has the shock on prices and profits in the industry, how might that change the industry and is it going to last? Or is it just like any other commodity, there's a boom and then there's a bust? I, I think it's basically like another commodity. It's, you know, it's, but the problem is it takes a while to actually invest in new capacity, right? So eventually people will invest in new capacity, supply will match demand again. I mean, we may not get back to the super cheap rates that we had, but we're already starting to see some of these rates come down. It's a bit of a challenge. And I think it fed that's partly why we're seeing some of these inflation numbers is because those costs do end up being passed along. Do you think, therefore, as some of the central banks of the world think, that this is transitory, that um, once COVID washes through the system, although it seems to be a bit longer than we all expected, uh, that, you know, we'll go back to something like normal, although not quite as wildly low as the prices we had pre-COVID? I, I think we'll get mostly back. And as you say, who knows when that will actually be. But I do think supply chains will adjust. They're pretty good at adjusting. Um, so I think those costs, people will again be looking for how do you keep those costs down. Yeah, I, I think we will get back to a almost like 
business as usual, hopefully a little wiser, hopefully more aware of our supply chains with a few more business continuity plans. That would be great. Who do you think of, um, who do you think's handled this the best? Is there anyone who's done really well at this, whose, whose systems were set up for this perfectly and just really made hay? Well, I think it depends on what you mean by doing well. I mean, one of the challenges in supply chains is you have all these independent parties doing what's best for them, quite logically, and then actually that may not be what's actually best for the entire supply chain. Um, so, yeah, the ship, some of the shipping companies have been making lots of money, but it hasn't actually been good for that whole that whole supply chain. Um, I think Amazon has, has really done very well. It's, you know, they've got amazing data and predictive data data and you know they they've been churning along um, and and making use of of the pandemic in terms of just growing their market share and uh, we've seen also some real choke points in the global supply chain we're at right at the end of it where have been the biggest choke points the ones that um Everyone stuck it. Um, well, a lot of them have made the news. So, for example, all the ships backlogged off the port of LA. Um, now, that seems to be largely because of truck driver shortage, actually. So it was that they couldn't actually get the containers off the ship because they couldn't wasn't anywhere to put them. Um, but that made news as just being so unusual. Obviously, we got we had the Ever Given stuck in the sewers. That wasn't great for global supply chains. Um, we've had some ports in China shut down due to COVID. That's, that hasn't helped. Um, and then in terms of actual, you know, good supply chains, there's actually, it's not so much a choke point, but we've had real issues with manufacturing. So manufacturing plants operating at less capacity because of social distancing or shutting down because of COVID outbreaks. You know, there's, there's actually been less stuff being made um, in that supply chain as well. So what we may um, think of as a ports or a shipping problem might actually be, you know, the chip plant in Taiwan just simply not able to scale up. Exactly. Yep. So, so there's some of that as well. And how do you think some of these big changes unleashed by this COVID experience, in particular, a lot of the big shipping companies are now building new container ships. And of course, the new ones are not smaller, they're always bigger. How do you think this might uh, affect New Zealand in the long run? How is this going to affect us? Well, the big ships are always a challenge for New Zealand in terms of there's been discussion on are we going to be hubbed through Australia, you know, ever since I moved back here, certainly, um, which was in 2010. Um, but, you know, if you've got a ship that big, if it's serving bigger than the New Zealand market can absorb, then you are going to have to hub through Australia. And then that just adds more lead time um, because then and handling, so it increases your costs. And it's a big issue for our agriculture because of the extra time and that lead time. You know, if you're selling perishable goods, you really don't want longer lead times in your shipping. Now, we don't often think of industries as strategic, where the government needs to you know, hold a stake in them to ensure the country doesn't fall over in some crisis. And there was a time back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, when having your own shipping line was something that you had to have. Because if there was a war or some sort of you know, oil crisis or whatever it is, you had to know that you could control your own shipping line. Now, that went out a long time ago. Is there any chance that that sort of strategic, well, what's New Zealand Inc.'s shipping line then? Because to make sure we don't get done over by MSC, MSC, whatever you want to call it. 
It's an interesting idea. I think there's probably enough competition in shipping lines that we're okay. Um, but I do encourage the government to think strategically about, you know, if there was an actual war, for example, that closed our borders, what do we actually need here strategically? And I'm not sure there's been enough thinking uh, in that dimension. Um, and then there's also, you know, because we don't have the economies of scale in many of our industries, there is an argument for government investment in infrastructure, for example. Um, but owning our own shipping line seems quite far to go. <laughs> And now the government um, may have to think a lot more about uh, its port policy, if it has one, because of the two two uh, islands, strangly country, lots of little cities that, of course, need to have their own port. Uh, but it seems with these bigger ships uh, stopping at fewer places, it seems we're headed towards a you know one or two port per island uh, strategy. Do you think COVID might accelerate us towards that, or are we just going to carry on with lots of smaller ports and uh, not much will change? Uh, I think we will continue to consolidate ports, as you suggest. I'm not sure how much COVID has actually encouraged that, um, but it's you know one of the challenges is that. It's not really a free market for ports, right? As you already mentioned, most of them are council-owned. It's not like you can kind of have a takeover of one by the other very easily. I mean, we see a little bit of these joint agreements happening, but that's kind of what you'd hope would happen as they start forming some joint agreements and you, you know, you still have enough to choose with choice, but just not this totally fragmented situation that we have now because it's huge investment to dredge to you know be able to take the big ship so it doesn't make sense to be doing that you know in every single port and the government is also having to think about this in the latest nzta strategy document it included 30 million dollars to look at what's happening with coastal shipping the idea of course that uh, it'd be great to bring some freight off those roads not produce quite so many um, carbon emissions and it also helped deal with this issue of, you know, uh, the, the number of port visits by the big ships uh, reducing and therefore you're going to have to have feeder systems from smaller ports into the big ones. Uh, what do you think's uh, going to happen with this, this coastal shipping review? What might we see at the end of it? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an argument to be made. Um, you know, it hasn't happened outside of government intervention because the numbers don't really stack up. Um, on the other hand, you know, we are short of capital in New Zealand. So, yes, maybe there's an argument for a capital in injection by government, particularly if one takes the greener perspective that it does you know, reduce carbon emissions, taking these trucks off the road. I mean, you know, if you start adding that into the wind column, um, you might actually end up with, with coastal shipping being a sensible um, thing to do. One thing that will increase the use of coastal shipping is as we move more and more towards automation. And we're quite far away from that. You know, even Auckland Port, the automation is not to the ship, um, but, you know, eventually we'll get there and then, yeah, you can just load, unload with, with your automatic um, straddle carrier. That will help, but 
it's not there yet. We've seen a few empty shelves in some of the big um, department stores. Uh, in a way, a completely foreign experience. That we think, oh, I'm outraged. How dare there be an empty shelf? What am I going to buy? Uh, <laughs> when do you think we'll get back to normal when we can turn up at the warehouse or Kmart and be sure to buy that toaster for $3? Uh, I don't think it's going to take that long because I think people are filling up those supply chains with the just-in-case stock you already mentioned, right? So I, I, I actually think that we'll get back to more uh, business as usual in six months, but it will be a more expensive business as usual because you've got those longer lead times, higher inventory holding costs, all those extra costs. But I think, you know, not having the product is such a negative for the stores. They'll just be ordering things earlier and carrying the stock that um, they'll adjust. And they're pretty, you know business is pretty good at adjusting to those kind of things. So I think the stock outs are on their way out, um, but not necessarily lower cost. Ah. And just, uh, I know it's early days, but of the structural changes that might be uh, triggered or accelerated by this COVID experience, what do you think will be what we'll remember in five, 10 years time? We'll go, ah, it was COVID that caused that. Uh, I think it's the move to online, our, our upskilling and technology. I mean, you know, I work at the university. People had to suddenly learn how to teach online. You know, we've, we've all suddenly been upskilled with Zoom and breakout rooms and all that, that side of things. Um, the ability to work anywhere. So that will be interesting to follow in terms of how much you know companies will actually be employing people around the world. Um, you know, I think that's a trend that will accelerate. And it's a little bit of a concerning trend relative to, you know, in countries that they don't need to pay people as, as much, you know, if you're, if you're employing someone, is it from the US, is it from New Zealand, or is it from Malaysia or India? Um, you know, there's a lot of very talented people around the world. So I think that's a bit of a challenge um, for us. Uh, Professor Tav Olson, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te aihe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.